Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Rambling Ambos. This is what's coming up. Today, we're joined by Dr. Barnes and an emergency room doctor who also happens to be a special something to someone on the show. He shares some awesome insights into what life is like working in one of the busiest emergency departments in the country. And we ask the hard questions like, should doctors wear white coats? Later, we discuss reports of a sharp increase in fentanyl overdoses and will we see it here? And Jen has the case conundrum in the clinical corner later with what she describes as her biggest trauma case in her career. All this and more, it's coming up now. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, Lee, we've got a special guest here at the table. Oh, so exciting, yeah. Carl. And um, Jen is here as well, of course. Too. Am I the special guest? No, you're um. not the special guest, but um, the special guest is a doctor. <gasps> um, but, guys, I'd just like to say congratulations. To Jen and Callum. Callum, welcome to the table. Hello, thank you, Carl. Now, Lee, Jen. This isn't just a special guest. This yes. is um guys. You popped the um you popped the, the question. question. Did. Jeez, congratulations, guys. Well done. Thank you. So Hopefully um how did how did it happen? We went hiking on the most horrendous weather day. Mm. Which um, suits us quite well given every other holiday we've had. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it changed yeah. the bad weather. Mm, every mm. holiday. Um, but, yeah, we went hiking and um, popped the question at the peak of the mountain. Did you get down on one knee, Cal? Was it uh, traditional oh. in that sense? or? <laughs> oh, it's sort of. Like, Jen was already sitting on the ground, so I kind of knelt on both knees in front he of he, oh. he, he popped a squat. He literally popped a squat. <laughs> That's cool. I like While that. Jen different. was, like, trying to catch her breath. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, guys, uh, today on this episode, we're going to be talking wedding venues, no. um, <laughs> dresses. Bridal, um, bridal bouquets. Yeah. So you're all in for an absolute treat. Um, Please. Where, where are you thinking of, um, of heading to? We're thinking about a winery. Oh, Ooh, good choice. I know, yeah. I know. I promise, guys, we're not actually talking about wedding stuff all day. Imagine. Oh, I think that's great. I think there's a whole cohort of um, listeners. Is it going to be ambulance themed? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to yeah. turn ambulance. up to the ceremony candy in an ambulance. Candy stripe? <laughs> candy stripe dress? Ambulance and CrossFit. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. CrossFit. Nice. Just lifting. Yeah, yeah. We're really niche couple. There we know? go. Oh, <laughs> guys, it's so exciting. And actually, Cal, it's, actually, it's really cool to have you on board because we're going to pick your brains about um, being a medical officer that you are. Mm. Um, and it's great, actually, because we now – any mistakes we make um, falls on you as Absolutely. the probably most um, Senior medical equipped. Senior clinician at the table. Yeah, mm. yeah. that's how it works. Mm. And any mistakes I make, I just blame on paramedics, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, they didn't tell us that at handover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll talk a little bit about handovers um, uh, a bit later, but um, – to kick things off, we've got a caller statement. Um, Ooh, I love this has come through from a little while ago, um, and it's a bit it's a bit different. The ambulance was actually called off, but the note was still there yeah, before it happened. Yeah, it doesn't happened. matter. So, the, call, um, the call itself is the important thing. Well, yep. the caller stated um, she stood on an ant and it's bleeding and would like an ambulance for the ant. Confirmed <laughs> no one there needed an ambulance and that they only wanted the ambulance for the ant. No. Caller stated no humans needed an ambulance and they would now go back to China if we can't bring them a pizza. 
What? Oh, well, I actually think it might have been a bit of mental health, actually. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> to be honest, I don't think I read the whole uh, <laughs> call a statement before oh, reading it can out. You imagine so, getting that, can you imagine being the call taker on that and just say, you need that ambulance for who? Sorry, your aunt? Yeah. What was it? Which toppings aunt, on the pizza? Aunt, yeah. Gosh. That is ridiculous. That yeah. is ridiculous. Uh, I, on that note, though, sometimes I've had, I've, I think I've been responded to like an interesting mental health call a statement. Which was asking us to please help him go find his brains back from Brownie who stole his brains. Oh mm. gosh, yeah. Um, never important. located the patient, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Well, this is a little bit like didn't last time we have someone who was very concerned about us stepping on peacock. Yeah, poo. poo? Yeah, yeah. The yeah. caller. It's like uh, an it was animal the theme in our in our caller statement. Yeah, the caller the caller called the ambulance, but put in a warning to say the peacock had pooped near the front door. <laughs> and just be be careful. Yeah, well, D in D R A B C D is danger. Like yeah, you've got to be aware of it. D- no, exactly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Danger comes first. Danger comes first. Have, right. yeah. have really you been off road no. for a little too long, Carl? It's really an overarching theme, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, but. Um, <laughs> Not too much danger on teleconferences. Oh, no, they Although, your background yeah, is that, a danger. That is a danger. It is. Have you got any post- naked neighbours? Poor posture. Poor posture is important. Yeah. yeah. RSI. Yeah, yeah. A cordless phone or, or wireless? I, I generally go for the wired ones. Yeah. Oh, wired. Well, then it's a yeah, hanging wrist. Exactly right. Oh, gosh, okay. <laughs> yeah, far out. Okay, no, so look, many dangers. a lot to think about. But... um. <laughs> Look, Cal, so you work in a, an emergency department. You're a, an emergency – how would you describe yourself? Are you a – you're a registrar but yes. um, specialise in a particular area so yet? Or? Yeah, registrar is like a pretty general term within the, within the medical field mm. um, for anyone who's kind of on a training program, be that emergency, intensive care, internal medicine, anaesthetics, that kind of thing. So um, I am an emergency registrar. Mm. Um, and then within that, there's sort of spectrums on how far along in your training as well. So you might be junior registrar is kind of early days, senior registrar is late phase. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle there. Yeah, right. What colour scrubs do you wear? Green. Oh. Ooh, nice. So nice. not quite boss level. Like, well, bosses wear black. It depends which think... hospital. Oh, are they different? Yeah, they're different. There are other hospitals where the bosses are green and it's really confusing. Oh. Do you think doctors should wear white coats? No. Yes. Why? Because they look pompous and ridiculous. Yes, okay. I totally and agree. No one washes them like tights. Ew. Ew, it's oh. COVID. What do you mean like tights? You wear tights? <laughs> <laughs> like, like neck ties. <laughs> oh, oh these are tights. You know what? This is true. I can attest to that. My ties certainly don't get I was about done. to say, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about washing their ties. Do you guys put point. your epaulets and badges through the wash? I do now. I didn't used to. Yeah, epaulets. They've got to be pretty gross on some uniforms, hey? Yeah. That do would, you? Carl, yeah. Carl's face? He does not put oh, them I in the wash. Oh, I polish mine. Oh, you've got the brass. Jokes. But yeah, okay, so... Yeah, you're working in emergency. Um, how long have you been doing that for? I've uh, been in emergency full time for the last three years now, mm. um, but I'm in my fifth year after university. All right, and just some um, on a bit of an unrelated question: Did you guys meet in Bedblock? How did you meet? <laughs> no. no, we met at the arterial gas blood. Blood uh, gas. ABG <laughs> machine. Oh, really? ABG blood machine. gas machine. That is so That's pretty cute. Know. So oh. how did it happen? You were like. Do you know what? I actually don't were remember. You asking, <laughs> were you asking how does this machine work, Jen? Or Yeah, and I was pointing to the machine, yes. obviously. No, no, I actually don't remember. No, there was like a month of us yeah. just like chatting and then. No, I think so. I was there I was there as like a baby doctor in my sort of second year after finishing uni mm. and was just running a gas on this machine. And I don't know, I just kind of looked over and saw Jen there and she I think she said hello. I said hello and we're just chatting. She was like, Do you want to see a photo of my dog? It's like 
I really getting I'm really getting like significant JD and Elliot from Scrubs vibes here. Oh, you know what? I haven't seen enough of Scrubs oh, to yeah. like understand your reference. Yeah, like deer-eyed, deer-eyed like junior doctor, just yeah. like deer in the headlights and then sassy paramedic, you know, just yeah, asking questions. That's and so funny. Love, blo- love blossomed. <laughs> Do you know what? I distinctly remember who I was working with at the time and they were like, that doctor's very friendly. I was like, no, he's just friendly to everyone. He's like, he hasn't said hello to me. <laughs> <laughs> Doctors never say hello to the paramedics. Yeah, yeah. Standard. Well, they should. I mean, we're a friendly bunch. Yeah. We're a friendly bunch. Most of the time. But I feel like I have a question for you, work-related. But with Ambrose, okay, so obviously you get handovers from us all the time. What is like your red flag? Like if you get a handover from Ambo, what makes you think it's a good one versus a bad one? Mm. I think... Like everything, your handover just has to make sense. Anything that's kind of all over the shop where they kind of start telling a story and then they go to tell you some obs and then they think, oh, wait, wait actually there was this part of the story actually that I've forgotten and then just um, when they are kind of nervous or flustered or sweaty or just so feel like they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> what oh, about okay. if they give you an APGAR for a 12-month-old baby? <laughs> Is that... <laughs> It depends if they're trying to give an APGAR for like when they were born okay, or yeah, if yeah. they're like their APGARs uh, yeah. are still still yeah. good today. <laughs> I really regret bringing that one up. I, I think love that, that. was it's my favourite story. But no, what, Cal, like what is the – how much importance do you put on the handover, particularly like a bat phone? If you're getting a pre-notification, mm. how important is that for you as a doctor? I mean, for I think us pre-hospital and hospital medicine, like planning is the most important thing you have. So the the earliest you can get that in information to so you can know what sort of how old the patient is, mm-hmm. what's happened, what their current clinical state is, and how long you're going to be is so important. Just to go, okay, what team do I need to assemble? Mm-hmm. What, how much time do I have to do it? And who else am I going to call from the hospital to mm-hmm. kind of come down and help me? Um, uh, yeah. Are you so, are you aware of the phenomenon of of always being asked what the BSL is for the patient <laughs> in a co- in a hand in a handover like a pre notification. Are you aware of that? No. Literally uh, yeah. every time uh, you you post a pass a handover via the radio, the question will always come back from the hospital. From the hospital, what's the BSL of the patient? Yeah. <laughs> Or temperature. Um, yep. Is your major trauma? I don't know. I don't really see the need. Is there a need? Is there a need for a BSL and major trauma? Mate, Thoughts? Don't ever forget glucose. What okay. if he's right. what Good. if he's crashed his car because his BSL's one? Oh. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's uh, true. Yeah. But I feel like yeah, my, I'm focusing on the bleeding control <laughs> instead really need of cardiothoracics, <laughs> not the yeah. endocrine, endocrine specialist. <laughs> or like yeah, the chainsaw through the leg, and you pass all the obs, yeah. and then it's and the BGL, please. <laughs> COVID risk factors. <laughs> yeah. yes, I get that all the time, but like uncon- unconscious person found by themselves with no bystanders, yet COVID risk factor. Um, can't ask them. Sorry. Also, they're still coming. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but again, it's just like it's good to know. It's being like, it is good to know. Well, Cal, I actually think you're right. I think it's good to be complete and thorough. Yes. Thank you, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No yes. I agree. I will consi- continue to give BS- BSLs dutifully. You've got to do the complete the BSLs. Yeah. What's that? I will continue to ask yeah. for BSLs. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question though. Like for the bat phone handover versus the, the recess handover, do you want them to be the same? How comprehensive should a bat phone handover really be? Like what would you expect? Um, I don't think it needs to be as comprehensive as a, as a recess handover. Mm. Um, I think... Yeah, you, you just need your salient points. Like I said, you kind of need to know how old this person is, what's happened to them, mm-hmm. what their currently current clinical picture is like, mm-hmm. 
mm. and what you've actually done so far. What management have you? Yeah, right. So you're talking like IMIST is pretty pretty yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. That's what it so exists for a reason. It exists within within the hospital system yeah. as well. Yeah. So for our listeners, IMIST identification mechanism of injury. Injuries, signs and symptoms, and treatment. Yeah, sweet. Because yeah. I think I remember you telling me once actually you had a pediatric coming in um, that potentially had a head injury or was seizing or whatnot. And even with only a few minutes' notice, particularly for pediatrics, you can start doing your age and weight calculations mm. in terms of drugs. Uh, and yeah. so I think from a resus hospital perspective, it's really helpful to have either the age or the weight of the patient, particularly for pediatrics. I mean, I'm sure for adults as well, but. That way you were able to draw up the right amount of adaz and everything there ready so that if it needed to be given, it could be given instantly for this paid who came in. Yeah. Exactly. Like pediatric cases often have a lot of protocols anyway and for like a seizing baby it's sort of going to be, okay, well, we need to have our benzos ready. We need to have our anticonvulsants ready. We need to have what sort of airway equipment we're going to need. Mm. So you need to crack the right level of the trolley. You need to know about how old they are, so about how much they weigh and therefore you can get all your drugs drawn up and ready and they come through the door and you've got your whole team ready to go. I guess it'd be like us turning up on scene without the caller statement. Like you just, you have literally no exactly. idea. Something yeah. rolls through no, the door yeah. and you're like, mm. act on it. But yeah. how often do we go to stuff and you're like, this is not what this I thought I was going yeah. to. Yeah. E.g. our clinical corner later. Woohoo! Oh, we got an exciting one there, do we? Yeah. It's pretty, good. it is possibly hands down one of the biggest jobs in my career. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Big statement. Big oh, statement. Well, stay yeah, well, tuned for that one, guys. Mm, very exciting. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, okay. So yeah, what's the next steps for you then, Cal, um, in terms of your career? Is, um, is it emergency where you'd want to stay or? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's so many facets within medicine and in the paths that you can take, but I'm kind of pretty fairly well down the line of emergency medicine training now mm. to change would be a real mm. just dick around for my career. Um but essentially, so I've got uh, officially about two and a half years of training time left to go. Uh, within that time, I've got to sit another set of exams. Yeah. And once I've done all of that, I can kind of get rid of the green scrubs, put the black scrubs on. Yeah. But how long that takes is really up to me. Yeah. Um, and there's so many things that I want to do within emergency medicine. So um, trying to do care flight and retrieval medicine, mm. um, trying to do toxicology-based sort of special skills, trying to do more intensive care time, working in a more regional setting as well. Mm. Yeah, I guess the opportunities are kind of endless mm. in that sense, aren't they? Mm. Absolutely. That sounds I have good. one last question for you. What's your favourite kind of job to come into the emergency department? What do you like? Oh, yeah. What do you F- like treating? Fast positive. <laughs> oh, it's got to be. <laughs> Respiratory sepsis. Yeah. <laughs> Anything arrhythmia. Is, oh, is really? arrhythmia, bradyarrhythmia. Cardi- like cardiology nerd, are you? Oh, it's just fun. Yeah. Like, like, and... Actually, being able to do something straight yeah. away, like just just shock them or just give yeah. them some drugs. Favorite and, type hey, of me on go. Uh, SVT. Why? Oh. Uh, it's just really satisfying to like revert it. Revert it. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Mm. Nice. As I look at SVT, I'm like, hmm. Well, cool. <laughs> especially <laughs> really? in babies when you dunk their head in enough bucket of ice. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even know that's a thing. It's a thing. Is that a skill of ours? Mm, well, technically, <laughs> technically. I guess you've got to find no, the ice. It's hard, the, it's hard for them to do the Valsalva <laughs> when they're infants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> blow into the syringe. <laughs> I mean, we tried and tried, but they just wouldn't <laughs> cooperate. We did our two attempts and they would not cooperate, so we medazzed them. <laughs> Patient management is important. It's and that's what it comes down to. <laughs> Ah, oh, there we go. Oh, well, um, guys, I've got a I've got a little clip for you to listen to um, yeah. in the debrief. Now, this is about a fentanyl overdose that happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 
I don't know if you guys are aware, but there's this really particularly potent type of fentanyl that um, has been going around the traps. Mm. Um, it's calf fentanyl. fentanyl yeah. And there's other um, derivatives of yeah, that as yeah. well. Um, and anyway, have a listen to this police officer who managed to get a whiff whilst on duty. Diego Sheriff's Department is sending out an urgent warning today after the near death of a deputy. New body camera video shows what happened to one of their own after being simply exposed to fentanyl while on the job. ABC 10 News reporter Mimi Alcala joins us live from the sheriff's headquarters in Kearney Mesa with the message they want everyone to hear. Mimi. Hi, Lindsay. They want people to see this video and realize just how quick and easy it can be to accidentally overdose on fentanyl. And I want to warn our viewers that some may find the footage to be disturbing. I got you, okay? I'm not going to let you die. As fentanyl-related deaths continue to be a problem okay. in San Diego County, okay. the Sheriff's Department has released this dramatic video as a public safety warning showing just how dangerous exposure to the drug can be. I'm Deputy David Feiwei, and I almost died of fentanyl overdose. On July 3rd, while on a call, Deputy David Five-Eye from the San Marcos station found a white substance that he suspected was drugs in this red Jeep. It tested positive for fentanyl on the scene. This stuff's no joke, it's super dangerous. Unfortunately, he was already quickly exposed to it. I was like, hey dude, too close. You can't get that close to it. A couple seconds later, he took some steps back and he collapsed. Five Eyes Field Training Officer Corporal Scott Crane spoke in the video released by the department detailing his instant reaction. He realized Five Eye was overdosing and quickly gave him naloxone, also known as Narcan, which reverses the effects of an overdose. My lungs just locked up. I, I, I couldn't breathe. Came down to him, grabbed him, and I, I did one nasal spray in one nostril, opened the other one. Another nasal spray. Crane stayed by his side as medics arrived. Five Eye OD'd again while in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, but thankfully he survived. The sheriff's department now using the intense footage to warn the public of the dangers of fentanyl. Fentanyl overdoses are on the rise throughout our county. Every day, deputies recover fentanyl in our communities. According to the DEA, the synthetic opioid is 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin. Well, guys, that was um, Mimi reporting from San Diego, mm, Mimi, America. Good old Mimi, great report. But, yeah. um, geez, is that possible? It's pretty gnarly, isn't it? I've heard of a few. I mean, I don't. I haven't heard of it in that extreme sort of case, I guess, with that officer. But I have definitely heard of carfentanil kind of floating around. Mm. I don't know if it's a huge issue in Australia or if it's just yeah. very small. <clears throat> I don't think it's a huge issue here. I know in the states, yeah, you can certainly has been um, any, those sort of stories of first responders being exposed through inhalation, skin contact and yeah. through the eyes as well to these yeah. like mm. very tiny amounts of cofentanil which um, some quick research has sort of suggested that it's 10,000 times more potent than normal fentanyl which is already 100 morphine. times more, more than morphine. Oh, yeah. sorry, it's, so it's 10,000 times more than morphine. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Usually designed to sedate and... Um, and anesthetize elephants and rhinos and stuff like big game. Yeah. So when it obviously comes into contact with humans, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's scary. It's scary for that for that officer. But um, like, what would we do if that was us in that well, instance? To be honest, if my partner just dropped down, I wouldn't be thinking, "Oh shit!" Oh, it depends where you are. Yeah. But um, they've obviously got some prior yeah. warning to like with giving... that kind of thing and then what to watch out for. But like interestingly, we should maybe discuss the signs and symptoms of what would happen if in, in a significant opioid overdose. Well, 
let's do that. But yeah. Cal, have you had anyone turn up into ED with such an overdose? No, have I, you seen it? Carfentanil, I'm I'm not super familiar with. I mean, I think the issues, as you guys would be familiar with in Australia, that we have is so often is is amphetamine overdoses much yeah. more than it is a lot of opioids, and the opioids that we do see tend to be things like heroin, fentanyl, oxycodone, much more than they do any of these more rare synthetic opioids. Yeah. So, and then that story is pretty unusual. I mean, inhalation is not a typical route of administration for opioid medications. Mm. Uh, intranasal, sure, we're all familiar with that. But inhalationally, I, it sounds a bit odd. I haven't heard of that happening before, but that may purely be due to the potency of this mm. this medication. But again... As far as I was aware, then I didn't think they were particularly volatile substances. Like usually anesthetics that are volatile anesthetics are ones that are sort of a liquid in a canister and then they become a gas and they go into uh, the air. Okay. Which like may, C- like SIVO or yeah, yeah, things like desfluorane, sevofluorane, yeah. even nitrous oxide. Yeah. But f- opioids, I've I've not heard of that being a thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I don't know if just carfentanil is a bit different. I'd need to look mm. more. Well, what I about pharmacokinetics? Yeah, it. I was going to say, I have heard stories though of there being um, cocaine laced with fentanyl. Yeah. And there's yep. been a that few reports. Yeah, yeah. Of like people Why? accidentally having opioid, like because they end up going really oh, flat. Oh, okay. And they have yes. opioid overdoses and people don't really know, they don't expect that from someone who's just had a bag of cocaine, for yeah. example. You expect well, them to be up. So that, that presents a really interesting like sort of toxidrome for that patient, right? Mm. So they've got ecstasy. Mm. But all, which is an upper, mm. which is an accelerant, rather as and then laced with a with a depressant, with a sedative, with an analgesic. So well, how are like they the going to present combination? Sounds <laughs> like they're just going to even each other For out, bad people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So well, like the the prim- like primary toxidrome for a for an opiate overdose, Cal. What are you looking for? Yeah, looking for um, pupillary constriction, respiratory depression, yeah. and. Um, Loss of consciousness. Yeah, sweet. Mm. And and uh, yeah, so I guess if you're seeing those kind of things, not immediately going to be some sort of overdose, but that's uh, what you'd start to be thinking of, right? If you get the patient who's got decreased LSC, uh, you've done your primary survey, they've got a a depressed respiratory drive and then you get down to sort of D and you look at their pupils and they're really constricted and pinpoint. You might think, Mm. geez, what have they taken or what have they been exposed to? And I think this is one of those moments as well where sometimes you have to like rely on your gut in terms of the signs and symptoms that you're seeing, right? Because, for example, you've had someone tell you, oh, they've had cocaine or no, we've just been drinking and then this happened. It's like if you have all of these kind of really typical symptoms that you would associate with an opioid overdose, even though everyone around them says, no, there's no way, there's no way. It's kind of like you have to trust your gut and go, this could be a differential diagnosis. Yeah. Not to the exclusion mm. of all else, I don't think, but I think like if it, what is it? What, if it look, quacks like a duck, it walks <laughs> like a duck. I don't know how. It, yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine though, and if you were taking that person to a hospital and you're bat phoning them, a, a glucose would probably be <laughs> would be it certainly to that. That's when you want to get roll. glucose. That's right. So what about so <laughs> a temperature? Also. But actually, yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. So um, Jen, Carl, yes. myself, we were going to have a very different threshold to Cal on this. But what is your threshold for naloxone in an opiate overdose in a pre-hospital setting? Uh, Cal, I'll get to you in a sec if that's all mm. right. But did you just ask yourself a question? Yeah, but but posed <laughs> to the paramedics of the group yeah. as opposed to Do the, you know the what? doctor. Yeah. This is a this is something I find really interesting because I've had 
I've had I've just been to regular opioid overdoses, yep. not so much carfentanil, but this is something that I've had kind of conflicting opinions about, mm. even myself or within the community. So I have been to a few jobs now where I haven't given naloxone. So what we or what I have typically done is you kind of get an airway in, so an NPA or an OPA. Um, you bag them up, you bring the oxygen levels up and you make sure their respiratory uh, effort is adequate, I guess, yeah. ventilation. Get an IV access line for them, load them into the car and take them to hospital. Yeah. No no Narcan. Mm. Um, or Naloxone, I should say, sorry. Um, but recently we took a patient to hospital and um, I was approached afterwards, you know, offloaded and resus, and I was approached afterwards um, quite directly being like, why did you not give that patient mm. Naloxone? Mm. And I sort of went, well... A, it's up to our discretion. Yeah. Um, B, you, I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with this as well, but, you know, if you've got your hypoxic patient or you've got someone um, who has just had their high cut short, you, you're dealing with a potentially combative yeah, patient, patient in the back of a confined space yeah. with potentially mm. only one or two people there. Yeah. Like mm. I appreciate in hospital, you, but you have more resources at your disposal. Yeah. You've got security, you've got more like mm. medications, more hands, more whatever. Yeah. So... I haven't given that. It's funny, it's like because times have changed. When I started this job, let's say 12, 13 years ago, I remember routinely going to opiate overdoses and my training officers or the senior paramedics on scene would put, would do what's called shotgunning naloxone. Oh so you'd, you'd, we used to give a much bigger dose, yep. a venous tourniquet around the arm, mainline the naloxone, flick the tourniquet and run, essentially, <laughs> which is really, really bad practice because of yeah. all sorts of arrhythmias and. Withdrawal syndromes, etc. <laughs> yeah. And so then we went was that part of the skill? Or no, was that it wasn't. It was, yeah, uh, it was. Step five, <laughs> right. it wasn't. But then, it, then it has certainly gone far more conservative in our approach. And I'd be interested to see what Cal says about this and your approach in the ED with how you manage an opiate overdose with naloxone in particular. Yeah, so I don't tend to use it very often. Yeah, um, I think like again, our, our jobs sort of mirror each other. In a lot of ways, and first step is always your primary survey, your ABCDE, looking at what's the clinical state of the patient. Like, yes, they may have had an overdose, but if they're still breathing spontaneously, yeah. they're saturating well. Mm. There's not, and and there's no reason to. Then you can just let them wake up. Um, but there's a whole lot of other things to going on as well. Like, yes, you might have a combative patient, or they might be fluctuating GCS. Yeah. They may have had polypharmacy overdose. There may yeah. be other medications on board. Um, there's the ECG changes depending on their comorbidities as well. Um, and then you kind of have to make that decision, well, if I give them naloxone, am I going to precipitate an acute withdrawal? Are they going to become more aggressive combative? Are they then going to have a seizure? How am yeah. I going to maintain their airway then? So uh, hmm. it's really there's no there's, there's no, no cookie-cutter r- approach no, yeah, to yes. any of these kinds of things. It's always got to be step-by-step. Step. Yeah. And then I think like all medications that – the advice is always going to be start low and go slow. It's like yeah. give them a dose. It makes no difference. Like may, maybe reconsider if it's even opioids that yeah, they've had. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. Um, and <laughs> naloxone has a reasonably short half-life as yeah. well. So if you're going to be giving it every five minutes, then you need to think about other yeah. ways of getting it into the also sort of dis- dis-bunk, uh, debunk something, not disbunk, debunk. <laughs> debunk something very briefly. Naloxone in opiate overdose cardiac arrest. Like, mm. let's not no, give let, it. Talk you know about what? this. So talk let's about not it. give it. But no. let's talk about yeah. it. Why? Well, I <laughs> because because an because an opiate overdose is is a is an airway is it, the the patient has gone into cardiac arrest due to hypoxia, mm. right? So we can establish an airway, we can breathe for them, we can start CPR, we can do it. Let's try and get their ROSC that way. What's naloxone going to do in that instance? It's going to yeah. it's going to bump off the the um, opiate from the receptor, which is not really going to give us any real benefit apart from 
if they're conscious, it's going to help yeah. increase their respiratory drive. But if they're dead, yeah. what's the point? Yeah. And then our post-intubation sedation is not going to work for us in ambulance. I know there are other post-intubation ah. sedation techniques, but yeah. we don't. ours are not going to work post intubation if we've loaded with naloxone and we have gotten ROSC. Mm. So well, yeah, I think that's really important to like bring up though. Yeah. Like thank you for explaining that because I think for a lot of people, even junior paramedics, like mm. yeah. you kind of thought reversible causes, reversible oh, causes. hundred percent. I'm not going to lie. I suggested that <laughs> yeah. on a job once when we had a, a patient that had OD'd yeah. um, and were clearly in a, in a rest. Yeah. Um, and I, I said to the intensive care paramedic, oh, would naloxone work? And she was great. She explained it. Completely. She's like, no. <laughs> and explain <laughs> no, it idiot. after. No, but Cal, is that, is that what you're thinking? Or you, like, feel free to oppose that. That's totally that's what we're here for. Uh, I guess, I mean, you have been doing this a lot longer than I have and you've admittedly seen probably a lot more opioid mm. overdose and cardiac arrest from opioid mm. overdose than I have. My first feeling is, yeah, the same as the other guys, is, well, yeah, treat reversible causes. If you can get some opioid on board, you are going to have difficulty with your post-intubation sedation yeah. afterwards. But uh, anything, I feel like, in an arrest, anything that you can do to try and get that ROSC more easily. Yeah. And I think if you can get them some respiratory drive back, yeah. then it's it's not necessarily a harm. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's going to help achieve ROSC or do you think once they've got ROSC, it's going to help with their respiratory drive? I think it would be the more the latter. The I don't latter, know if it's yeah. necessarily going to help you achieve ROSC. I think yeah. once you're there. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Well, no, well, that's what I was thinking about when I suggested it as well as yeah. a trainee. But um, yeah, you were, you were definitely forward thinking, Carl. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, guys, we've got a lot more coming up, especially this juicy um, yeah. case conundrum by Jen. So stick with us. And uh, the Clinical Corner is up next. Clinical Corner time and it's a case conundrum today. And Jen, mm. you're leading us through it. I am. I'm on the big stage. Tell us more about what you have encountered. Well, 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 well. I've actually, anyone I've bumped into on road has probably heard about this story. I love talking about the story, but I just mm. find it really interesting. Mm. Um, so I kind of talk you guys through it and I just want you to, I guess, come back at me with what kind of assessments you would do and what kind of treatment I guess you would do. Yeah. Um, because I think that with this case in particular, there's no real right or wrong answer. I think mm. this was complicated. I think that this was challenging from a sort of general paramedic level perspective mm-hmm. um, because we don't necessarily have the tools or the equipment um, to really be able to deal with this appropriately, I think. So mm-hmm. this was a really multi multifaceted, multi-agency kind of approach hmm. for this job. So I'm really, I'm really setting it up. Is it like a I? zoo, another zoo one or oh, another I'm like plane crash? No, yeah. <laughs> Bus yeah. full of haemophiliacs. <laughs> <laughs> you said that before. Oh, have I? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Maybe offline, but yeah, now it's on the record. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what was the case? So the case came down as a um, lights and sirens job, a traumatic chest injury. I was not the first person put on the job and I was not the first person there. But the notes in the job were, um, you know, sort of a middle-aged male, Mm. uh, chest injury, using a domestic power tool has essentially opened up his chest from about his – well, sorry, the caller statement was um, cut to chest, can see heart and lungs. Oh, dear. 
So yes. something spinny and not sharp. Good. Yeah, some kind of tool. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not – look at me. Do I look like I use tools? I don't know. Uh, uh, but I've so that that's the information on the job. So it's still, you know, all of the other kind of pertinent bits with it, alert, breathing, conscious, not changing colour, you know, none of those kind of, you mm. know, background bits. Mm. But it, the caller statement was domestic power tool, um, can see heart and lungs. That's remarkable that he's still like – alert yeah yeah yeah. by this point at the time at this time yeah yeah exactly so i guess with that information what would you guys be considering on route (laughs) um i'd probably be going a little bit slower to make sure that i'm not first on the scene (laughs) and um yeah i think the first the first thing i'd want to do is um if i could see if there was heart and lung on show my main concern is going to be major hemorrhage. Yeah. Not a lot we can do about that, right? Like we're not stapling myocardium back together and we're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then probably re-establishing the integrity of the chest wall as best I could. Are you speaking about this from a, a chopper perspective? I'm probably speaking this from, from, from just like a, just a mechanical, general, just like yeah. a mechanical perspective. Like if, if blood's, not going around and around and air is not going in and out. Yeah. We need to fix it, right? Yeah. So if blood's coming out of a hole, yeah. try and plug it. If yeah. it's not and the air is sort of going going in and out but it's escaping somewhere, mm. try and plug that hole and mm. re-establish that chest wall integrity. Mm-hmm. That's where my mind goes. Yeah, okay. Anything else, Colin? Oh, I'd be Googling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Furiously yeah, Googling yeah. in the ambulance. <laughs> so I found the things that came into my mind, just to add to that for me, were – this perspective of do we have all the appropriate resources coming to this job, mm. right? So, um, you know, initially I think there was just a general duties ambulance responded to the job. But mm. with that information, me personally, I want to go, we need intensive care. We need a chopper potentially mm. for this patient. Mm. We need a manager. We need the police there to assist with um, the chopper, you know, um, yeah. facilitating the logistics of the chopper and things like that. Like we need a lot of resources at this job mm. if this is – what it says it is right so that's just something for our listeners i guess to think about as well we often think about the clinical presentation yeah so scene management like yeah call it early exactly exactly and you know and sometimes you'll turn up and if you turn up and job not a stated whatever that's fine Mm. but that's where i would be flagging on the radio what other resources do you have coming to this can you send a manager is there ic um or intensive care or critical care coming to wear a hard hat or not wear a hard hat big decisions (laughs) big decisions i'm always for the hard hat yeah yeah. have they had any covid risk factors recently (laughs) What's their BSL? (laughs) (laughs) So I guess um, this is what you find on scene, right? So Yeah, so you rock up. Park the ambulance um, and you're met by two people who look very frantic waving at you, Mm. right? So there is panic. There is palpable panic at the scene. Mm. Um, Walking in, there is a gentleman who is lying on the the grass that's around the side of a house. So this is a domestic property, just a residential house, I should say. So it's not really a construction site. Okay. It was just a... So no hard hat. No. Yeah. Oh, you could wear it. That's fine. If you want to, safety first. Um, But he's lying on the ground. And he is alert. He's sort of got his eyes closed, but he's, he, he responds. He opens his eyes as soon as you sort of walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the injury that you see is basically from pretty much his sternum wrapping around to um, the left side of his chest, almost at the bottom of your rib cage. So if you're visualising this, sort of from the centre of your chest yeah. down wow. to the bottom it's of your rib like cage. kind of like DIY thoracotomy. Exactly. It was one like big cut. Like a straight cut? Yeah, a straight cut, right? Oh. And it has cut through... All of the um, skin and fascia and muscle yep. and I don't know, all the other 
medical words bone, for that. Bone. Yeah. Well, so it had cut through to that, so you could see that the chest wall was otherwise intact, except for um, I'm trying to describe this verbally, except for like a like a fist sized um hole in his chest wall kind of halfway down his chest i'm thinking right. maybe the level of like the the uh, just say like sixth the rib or something like that mm. i'm kind of making that up mm. but around there is about a fist size hole where you can see his lung inflating Oof. oh so, so you that's can see what you're it looking. going yeah. up and down yeah. Yeah. at least it's still going up and down it is still going up and down so couldn't see any heart from looking at it but could definitely see um a little bit of the lung and obviously this this cut, the way the nature of it, I guess, imagine if you do a big cut, all the skin's sort of um, pulled away Retracted from each other now. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's kind of gaping as well, right? Gross. So looking yeah. at that, what are your thoughts now? Well, probably a little bit more panic. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, so active bleeding? Well, so this was the interesting thing. At the time, not not really. Yep. It wasn't profusely bleeding. Right, okay. Right? So it wasn't like spurting. No, no, no. So that was something that we really observed at the start was that mm. it was not profusely bleeding. Yeah. So it's almost like one of the um, medical TV shows, like the real ones yeah. where you see them just do like a surgical incision in someone and then yeah. it, all the fat and all the tissue yeah. opens yeah. up. Yeah. But it's not like yeah. pouring yeah. out. I think it's my, not pouring. My, my trauma go-to is March. Mm. It's always been March, right? Yeah. So massive hemorrhage. Yeah. Is it bleeding? Can we stop it? Yes, no. Plug the hole. On. Plug the hole. Yeah. Hey, anyway, he's, you said he had one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah he's, he was, he's I was hoping anymore. he could talk to you. Okay, yeah. So we can move on from that. Uh, mm-hmm. Respiration, that's where we're going to get pretty stuck here. Yeah. So how do we fix that? Do we do we try and mm. reestablish the integrity of the chest wall? Do we glue, like, do we suture it? Do we staple it? Do, mm. we, put, do we put, like, chest seals? Like, what do we do? Mm. What were, was he resping up? Like, um, what were some of his... Well, before we get to vitals, yeah, yeah, I okay. guess I'm interested in your th- thoughts, Carl. Like from, if, I mean, if we're really looking at that initial um, impression, like what would be your steps that you'd want to do, even if that is get vitals? Like what would you do, Carl? You walk in, you see that, what would you do? Mm. I would like to say March, but I don't yeah. think yeah, that would be, be the front in March. Yeah. Oh, I mean, look, it, it's it's difficult because... I don't know, it's been a little bit of time yeah, since yeah, I've been yeah. on the tools. But if, you know, I guess if I was just came across my neighbour like that, yeah. um, in a sense I'd be wanting to cover it and yeah. kind of like put it back together. Yep. Um, but making sure that, you know, your priorities, just going mm-hmm. back to ABCs, mm-hmm. for me that's, yep. yeah. Perfect. I mean I, the march wouldn't have come to mind but mm. the ABCs yep. would. And, yep. um, you know, if he's, if he's got a pulse on his, mm-hmm. you know, and his sats are good, rest yep. being okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'd, that would be. A I'd, I'd. Yeah. Want to try and just maybe put some moist combine. Yeah. Over yeah. the over the wounds, but and that's no, no, no. Yeah. But that's really valid that you bring that up, right? So because, um, essentially what ended up happening, and I do think, and again, I like I haven't quite painted the full picture, I guess here, but the first person that arrived on scene saw this, gave a report on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, significant chest laceration. Can see the lung inflating. Um, patient is alert, conscious breathing, yep. he's hypotensive. Mm. Uh, okay. But like that was the report. That's a good that report. Went, it is. Yeah. It's really simple yep. but it is going to get everyone started. Yep. Like Absolutely. yes, the information that came through is correct. Let's let's get the ball rolling. Yep. Right? And you don't have to go into the nitty gritty of, of the PSL. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. 
So what did you do? What was your so, – what did they do? What did you do? What it, okay, so I guess from here I'll start with I wasn't the first on scene, no. right? So what I walked in to find was that, like you said, Carla Combine. So basically a big trauma pad had been mm. put over his chest because mm. I think no one really knew what to do with it, mm. right? It, I, and I mean I you wouldn't want it to get infected. Yeah, no, but that's a really good point that you bring up. So, so there was a big combine on it and I think also just to like – relieve the patient's concern, relieve yeah. the bystander's concern. Yeah. Like you're looking at this huge thing. If you yeah. cover it, and if all of a sudden it's If you're manageable. by yourself with no extra support, like mm. – What do you do? What can you do? Exactly. Extra. It's, no, and mean, it's so hard. So I guess we've ascertained that there was not significant bleeding at the time, mm. right? So, so hemorrhage, we're fine. Airway, we're okay. Breathing <sighs> – as a, as a general duty Zambo, like what can you do? You can't – I mean you can potentially ventilate that patient but he's alert, he's talking to yeah. you, he's yeah, resting up to. a little yeah. bit. So mm. um, I'm kind of ballparking these obs a little bit, right? But so let's give him a respirate initially of like a 24, 28 kind mm-hmm. of thing, okay. right? So not like excessively high. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember his saturations but I don't think they were terrible. Um, mm. His blood pressure was sort of sitting around that 95 mark. His heart rate, he wasn't tachycardic. It was like 78 okay. um, and temperature and BSL were not checked at the time. So, the, <laughs> so he's like kind of mildly hypotensive, right? And so what I walked in, I found him, he had uh, a combine on his chest, like I said, and um, – the crews were in the process of putting of getting IV access, bilateral IV access, which I thought was a great priority. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. OBS had been done. Um, his wound had been covered somewhat. It wasn't yeah. bleeding, so there didn't need to be active pressure. Mm. And then there was a focus on IV access and let's pump, let's start getting some fluids because he is hypotensive. Yeah. Mm. So that was a, a priority, I guess, for, for the crews, which I think was amazing. The decision was made um, – well, I'll start with what I did. So, so the very first thing that I did, and this is where um, this is a skill that special ops paramedics have. Um, we have in our possession some chest seals. So, are you guys familiar with chest seals? Yes. Yeah. yeah, Lee, you would be Carl. Do you know? Oh, no, no. I'll explain them. So, basically, um, what we have are chest seals. So, they're kind of vented dressings. They're designed for sucking chest wounds. So, they're designed for like a penetrating, um, like gunshot. Yeah, gunshot stab yeah. wounds to your chest, where. Um, air can get in and then potentially not escape and therefore you have mm. increased risk of tension pneumothorax in really simple terms. You've got right? a – it's a commercially available three-sided chest seal that you don't have to uh, – Ah, yeah, yes, so you, you don't, don't have, have to, you know, put it the from sticky tape across exactly, the three yeah, yeah. edges of the um, – let's, let's, let's air come the, out of the cavity the and not go back in. Yep. Yeah. Packet that yeah. you've just yeah. – <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Exactly. And every ambo should have it, just side note. I know, but it's not necessarily the case. So this is what I have – um, in my arsenal, yeah, right? And so, and that was the first thing that came to my mind, right? Is I could use this. However, when I turned up, I looked at the wound and I was like, that is too big for my mm. chest seal. But I had a colleague there who encouraged me to um, essentially bring the skin back together. So kind of pull that back together so that it's in a straight line as opposed to being a gaping wound. Mm. And then we, they almost acted like steri strips, right? Mm. So just imagine mm. steri stripping a small cut, but on a much bigger scale. Was he in much pain? We didn't really ask him. Yeah. Uh, he Low didn't, priority. He yeah. didn't really well. scream out, but this is an interesting point that you do bring out. But I'll get to that. So we, I put three chest seals on this patient to seal that wound up. That's how big this wound was. These chest seals are kind of like the size of an A6 piece of paper, oh, maybe a little bit smaller. Pad, yeah, there you yeah. go, a defib yeah. pad. Which consequently is another good chest seal, just doesn't vent. And that was yeah. something that someone brought up. Yeah. So anyway, we've put these chest seals on. And I guess my rationale behind it was um, I'd been kind of taught Close the close the chest wound to reduce your risk of tension pneumothorax. Now mm. the anatomy of this one 
or the you know physiology of this is a little bit different to a sucking chest wound, but that was what went through my head, as well as infection control. So like you mentioned with the combine and infection control, I think it's really important. Yes, he's used a dirty house tool. Yes, he's outside. But if we can minimise the risk of further things getting into the wound, mm. um, that was another thing that kind of mm. added to my thinking, right? Mm. So that was the two, I guess, big key factors behind my decision. And then the patient was then moved from where he was onto the stretcher in the driveway. So we had 360 access to oh, this great. patient, which was not my decision. It was someone else's, but I think it was a wonderful decision mm. because so, so important, isn't it? Yes, because so easily we could have gotten bogged down with this patient around the side of a house in a cramped space yeah. um, and gotten stuck with no forward momentum. Yeah. So I thought that was epic. Um, and then I guess what happened from there is that we had the helicopter doctor and paramedic turn up. And so there was a series of uh, interventions that, you know, occurred on that behalf. So I guess, Lee, I'll kind of throw this question mm, to you yeah. there where um, what what would you do as a as a helicopter paramedic in this sort of situation with that information yeah. provided? I think you're expecting this patient to go <clears throat> down the gurgler. You're expecting this patient to decompensate and um, crash on you. So you'd be preparing for those kind of things. And again, in that MARCH sort of... Um, you know, function, fashion, M, major, is this patient going to bleed in, yep. and continually bleed? So you've got the bilateral cannula, you've got um, blood at your disposal now that the mm. medical team's arrived. Do, as soon as you crack your blood, you need to be thinking about um, more blood, a rapid yep. transfusion protocol, where's mm. it coming from, who's going to bring it to you and where are you going to get it? Then uh, A, airway, if they do crash or lose their bundle, we're going to need to take that airway. Do mm. we need to take it? prophylactically do we yeah. need to rsi this patient and so take instead over? of waiting for them to deteriorate yeah let's yeah. let's put them to sleep that's very humanitarian effect as well mm -hmm. you know just take put take put them out of that sort of them mm. uh, you know quote unquote misery a little bit and take their airway before they think about it. that to be honest yeah but and we then, don't because it's not yeah. in our repertoire almost so. it's like if they're alive well that's a good thing yeah, yeah. they're awake and talking that's a good thing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and then r i guess you've you've sealed that with chest wound what i'd be concerned about is that now that it's sealed it's got hasn't got that that well might lose that two-way airflow air yep. and might start to tension. So do we need to put in a finger thoracostomy or is that already there because yep. it's so open? Do we need to decompress or do we just need to lift the chest heel up and, and decompress the injury through the original Yeah, so just allow hole. the air to escape through yeah. the, the patching so that we've done. So once those three things are done, I think it's diesel or a Jet A1 yep. to hospital yep. as quick as you can. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess I won't kind of say what the the – doctor and paramedic did yet but Cal I guess I want to pose this question to you so let's say that there was no it was terrible weather and the chopper couldn't fly um and you just have um you know intensive care or general duties paramedics who brought this patient to you and essentially all you have in front of you is a patient who's had their chest patched up um they have IV access they've had a liter of fluid they've got radial pulses they look pale sweaty they're still borderline hypotensive um and they're struggling with both I guess pain and respiratory effort what what is your priority in a in an ED resus for this patient? So this is not on the side of the road anymore. No, no. So we've brought them to you, but there's been no intervention by doctors on or, or critical care paramedics on road. I mean, so you're going to hope that you've got a bat phone beforehand, and you've got all these critical <laughs> yeah. injuries. VSL yeah. five point seven. Don't care so much about the VSL <laughs> in this situation, but having that time allows us to put out what's called a trauma attend yeah and that's a hospital-wide pager where you'll get a surgical registrar you'll get anesthetics registrar you might get icu and you'll get everyone there ready for when they put this person arrives mm -hmm. and 
based on that code three or that bat phone, um, you want to know if you need to make this a code crimson, which is essentially this patient comes into ED and this patient goes to hospital, goes to the yeah. operating so theatre like straight away. ED sort of. Yeah, yeah. almost like a, a transmission for a, for a myocardial infarction where it's like go straight to cath lab. Don't yeah. even come to research, yeah. go mm. straight there. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your question again? Yeah. <laughs> what would you do in, in ED? So they come into your ED yeah. bay. Um, what, how do you manage this patient? Yeah, so, you, so you say you've got the patient as you found them without any chest seals or anything mm. like that. I think we're going to be thinking, again, along the same lines as what Lee's just mentioned. So massive hemorrhage, bilateral cannulae, where are they bleeding from? Can you stop it? Replace the blood straight away. They're mm. pale, sweaty, hypertensive. Mm. This patient's got a massive injury. They're probably going to be hypovolemic from blood loss. Possibly there's a respiratory component causing that um, mm. Yeah. The, the clinical picture as well. Once you've got that in, A, yes, they're still breathing spontaneously. Great, but they're not going to be doing that for very long. And right. your disposition for this patient is regardless going to be operating room. Mm-hmm. So yeah, depending, the expected clinical course is a tube yeah, into theatre. Depending mm-hmm. on how quickly you can get to theatre, you might not be in a hospital that has cardiothoracics input Mm -hmm. they might not be able to do this so you may have to stabilize the patient some other way there could be a old general surgeon on call who's great at damage control stuff and can can do his bit to stabilize the patient before you can transfer out for definitive care but let's just say for argument's sake you are in a tertiary center um and then managing the chest wound so Mm -hmm. you're happy there's no big spurting bleeding gushing Mm -hmm. blood anywhere um ventilating this patient would i put a chest or would i put a chest seal on Mm. probably not Mm -hmm. um because you you do have that risk of tensioning the patient Mm -hmm. anyway if you're completely closing off that wound um i'm curious as to why he was or how he was still breathing spontaneously it depends on at least through that through that left side of his lung Mm. because you've essentially ruined the negative pressure and physiology of your chest Mm. so normally you should take a breath in and air kind of sucks in and the lung expands that way you've got an open wound there you're going to breathe in and that lung's just going to do nothing Mm. so perhaps Mm. he's just ventilating all through his right lung Mm. and so to ventilate him properly you're going to need positive pressure ventilation which again you're going to need to intubate him to do that. Mm. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess so what ended up happening for us is that the kind of pretty much all those tick boxes that mm. you said, mm-hmm. like, right, so so what happened is, um, yeah, blood was administered yeah. um, and then further blood was retrieved from a nearby hospital. Yeah, we were nice. quite lucky in the sense of where we were. We were quite close to another hospital but quite far from the trauma centre that he needed to be. So mm. it warranted getting that process yeah. started. Yeah. Mm. So that happened. And then um, secondly to that, one of the IV lines tissued, right? So the decision was made to get IO access or mm. intraosseous access. So that was um, completed as well. The patient was prophylactically um, needle decompressed, oh, yeah. essentially. Okay, so there's so, – yeah, so that's going to help with – yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tension. And speaking to the crew that attended the scene, so the decision for that, again, was it were prophylactically. So yeah. there was the – the, con- the idea that you were going to positive pressure ventilate this patient, therefore it needs an escape yep. hole because of that injury. Draw tension really quickly. Yep. Um, and then uh, so we had IO access, we've had bloods, we've had a chest decompression and then he was tubed. Yeah. Um, so. Nice. Yeah, he was tubed. All those things were achieved and then um, he was loaded into the ambulance and driven driven to hospital. Mm. Um, and so there a code crimson was passed. So that was passed to the hospital and he went straight to 
theatre. Ah, okay. So, so did bypass. Yeah. So and like is that because you, he was already tubed yeah, and seen? Yeah, yeah. Mm. so basically this patient in a way is already packaged to a point where they can go straight to the operating theatre and get the care that they need. Yeah, there's not a lot more we can do yeah, in yeah. emergency if he's Once already got done. Yeah. tube in. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess there is benefit then to for tubing patients on scene yeah, in a lot yeah. of these cases. It, I does think it so. And I, I save think a large part of it is going to be your patient management as well, like mm. Lee, Lee mentioned. Like the disposition for this patient is going to be intubation mm. and theatre for operative repair. Providing they're not so hemodynamically unstable, do you think giving them your uh, induction drugs and intubation drugs is going to make them have an arrest like at that point, which is certainly a very realistic possibility in mm. trauma, mm. then... Why should the patient have to be awake for this entire process yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It can be a very, very quick process with a, a not sort of cumbersome uh, emergency department sort of beast that sort of has to have a lot of input with with well, with two people or three people doing that process. That skill can be very quick yeah. and and expedient. Um, yeah. For, you know, yeah. I think not another. Like that. Sorry, oh, I was going to say not like that practical we did with you trying to. <laughs> <take your patient laughs> no, yeah. Just not talk about that for your university. Yeah. Assignment. Yeah. I think one more thing I just really like to point out: this yeah. patient really desperately needs to be kept as warm as possible. Oh yeah, thank this you patient that. is going to arrest, you know, and continue to bleed internally if they're if they're sort of in that triad of of, of you know death and calcium. If you're going to give give blood. We're going to routinely give calcium because oh, of the uh, the properties of, of coagulation that yep. um, that have been inf- inf- affected. And um, when we give blood, we sort of there's issues. Yeah, that, cool. That, yeah, need calcium replacement. So, and guess what? He survived and walked out oh, yeah. of the hospital two weeks, later. Girl. two weeks later. Two weeks well later. Two weeks later. Wow. Yeah. Nailed yep. it. So it was awesome. It was yeah. really everyone. You on said scene. that's like the be- the biggest job you've seen to well, date. That's probably the biggest job you'll you'll <laughs> see. Like that's ever. a massive yeah. job. And mm. I think the key thing for me, just like looking at this generally, though, is kind of going. We've all seen trauma. We've all seen some pretty messed up trauma. But mm. this is one of the biggest traumas I've seen in someone who is still – like he was GCS 14 when we mm. arrived on scene. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I'd like yeah. so often that patient is deteriorating yeah. or already basically dead. Mm. This man was super lucky that day. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. Good for oh, you, Jen. Good well thing you were there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, gosh, isn't that beautiful? Oh, fun. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for today. And mm. um, look – Cal, we're gonna pick you. The, we're gonna get you to pick the emergency driving song, but obviously that's a bit tricky for you because you're an AD. But when you get called to a code blue and you've got to run through the hospital to get to that patient that's just had a syncope in the toilet, by the bedside, or wherever, going to save the day. What do you listen to when you put your headphones in whilst you're running to that to that code? <sighs> There's so many <laughs> options, but <laughs> there, there, there is. You. It's got to be Hero by Enrique Iglesias, sure. Oh, great pick. Great pick. Okay, well, look, here it is. Um, Guys, (laughs) uh, thanks so much for tuning in. If you like what you're listening to, please leave us a a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. But um, Callum, thanks again so much for coming on and being a part of it. But until next time, guys, take care. Goodbye. Thanks, team. Bye. I can be only.